Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And this morning, I received an email from Lex Pelger, where he's uh, staying in Boulder, Colorado right now on his Blue Dot tour. And he tells me that the Symposia team has been quite well received on their tour, and I think we can expect some really great psychedelic stories from them in the weeks and months ahead. Now, the program that he sent for today is one that I'm really anxious to hear myself. It's an interview that Lex did with Dennis McKenna about the upcoming, and this is a mouthful here, I'll do my best. (laughs) The name of this conference is the Ethnopharmologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs 50th Anniversary Symposium. (laughs) And I understand that it's going by the shorthand version of ESPD50. And this is going to take place in England this coming June. I'll put a link to the website for that conference in today's program notes, uh, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. Also, I understand that Lex is going to be talking a little bit about how he and the Symposia team are funding the wide range of their activities that are bringing our community closer together every day. But since I haven't listened to their program yet myself, why don't I just get out of the way and listen along with you? Now, here's Lex Pelger and Dennis McKenna. Hello, I'm Lex Pelger, host of Symposia, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Today, we're pleased to hear from Dr. Dennis McKenna on his inspiration for pulling together the upcoming ESPD-50, the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs, the 50th Anniversary Symposium coming up in London. You can find out more at ESPD50.com. But before we start, I must apologize for the audio quality on this show. Mistakes were made. I am still new here and getting into the swing of it as we move through the process of upgrading all of our sound equipment. Now, I don't want to surprise you, but running an online magazine about drugs and traveling around the country hosting storytelling events is not exactly what you would call lucrative. At Symposia, we rely on community support through crowdfunding, and that's why I'm asking for your help. If you believe in honest drug education via journalism, podcast, storytelling, and by bringing people together for community events, I'd ask for your monthly support through Patreon. Thanks to our community, we just hit our first goal of $1,000 a month. And now we want to hit $2,000 a month by next week. So we're having our first Symposia sale. Starting today, and for one week only, until the end of Psychedelic Science 2017, all pledges will be boosted to the next level with even bigger and more beautiful perks. If you pledge up to $5 a month, you'll get the first full digital chapter of my new graphic novel, Anandamide, or The Cannabinoid. Volume 1, How to Shoot an Elephant. The chemical hunt on what makes cannabis so damn psychoactive. It took me four and a half years to get this first full installment done, and I've never been so proud of anything I've done in my life. So for $10 a month, you'll get a print copy of my other chapter that I completed, the queer chapter, about how Reagan ignoring the AIDS crisis launched the modern medical marijuana movement. On top of that, you'll get a beautiful piece of our blotter art, too. Pledges of $17 per month will get you the new Symposia Hemp t-shirt. 
These shirts are screen printed with water-based ink, no plastic, and made of a high-quality blend of hemp and organic cotton. And they fit perfectly. Plus, you'll also get a piece of blotter art, too. Finally, we have the Bernie Sanders Special. For $27 per month, you'll get a hemp t-shirt, a piece of blotter art, and both chapters of my graphic novel delivered right to your door. Our goal at Symposia is to bring people together in person and online. And so we ask for your help to allow us all to learn from one another. If you agree, please help us reach our goal of $2,000 a month by next week. You can find more at Symposia.com or on our Patreon page. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Symposia. P-S-Y-M-P-O-S-I-A. Lordy, lordy, why would we pick a name that you can't spell from that? And for anyone at the Psychedelic Science Conference this weekend, come on by our stage and I'll put you in the no-nonsense club. Thanks for all your support, and now here's Dr. Dennis McKenna. We are very pleased to be here with the scientist Dennis McKenna. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Lex, for having me. I really appreciate it. All right. You got all kinds of great stuff going on. But I think the first thing we want to hear about is the conference that you'll be organizing. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, we're, we are organizing. It's certainly not all me no. because a conference like this is a group effort. But uh, uh, the title of it is the it's a kind of a big, big mouthful, Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs, Part 2, 50 Years of Research. That's the, that's the full title. <laughs> what does all that mean? Well, it's a conference that I have wanted to do for many years. And, and it, it is about, in 1967, the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, or the, actually the National Institute of Mental Health, sponsored a conference in San Francisco, of all places, uh, that was called the Ethnopharmacologic Search for Psychoactive Drugs. And all the big people of the time were there. Uh, you know, uh, Schultes, probably the primary figure, Alexander Shulgin, Andrew Weil, other people probably not widely known to people outside the specialty. But it was a historic conference in a sense that this all happened at the height of the countercultural revolution. 1967 was the summer of love. And that was going full tilt in San Francisco at the time. But some in some obscure part of San Francisco, uh, actually, it happened in January 1967. You know, these scientists were meeting very much on the QT. They weren't paying any attention to the social milieu. Um, and this happened at a time, probably just before the idea of psychedelics began to be controversial and the sort, you know, the public campaign to sort of distort perceptions of all that uh, was not quite rolling yet. And there was uh, great uh, optimism and hope in the scientific community that by looking at some of these obscure, if you want to call it that, psychotropic, psychoactive medicines that were used in indigenous cultures, 
new plants, new substances might be identified that could have medical uses and other useful useful properties. It was a closed conference. It was there was no one invited, uh, so it was very you know exclusive in a sense. And what came out of that was a symposium volume uh, by the same name, which was published by the U.S. government printing office. Uh, and I think it was Public Health Service publication number 1645. You can actually download the PDF of this from arrowwood.org. You can do a search on books and it will show up. It's there as a PDF. And, uh, you know, you can you can download it. Well, the original idea was that this was an active field of research and that there were supposed to be conferences every 10 years or so, you know, and and. Uh, it never happened because the the war on drugs came along and public perceptions changed and probably the government began to feel that they were, you know, a bit embarrassed that they had ever sponsored this thing, although it was a great conference and it produced this wonderful publication. But anyway, for various reasons, there was never any follow up. 2017 is the 50th anniversary of this conference. And in the meantime, lots has happened in this field. Lots has happened in this field and so i kind of well it's a personal and a professional thing that book fell into my hands the original volume i don't know how uh in uh, probably the summer of 2018 and i was just beginning to get interested in psychedelics learn about them and then along comes this book which represented you know, a whole scientific field that i was really kind of dimly aware of, but but really didn't know that much about it. All of a sudden, here it is. So I dropped everything. I devoured that book. And it was, as I still have it, actually. And it was, it was a game changer for me. It was kind of what made me decide to go into the field of ethno, ethnopharmacology. Wow. So and what year was I, that again? That would have been, well, the conference was in 1967. Mm -hmm. And I was, uh, but it, uh, but the the volume, the book was not published till some months later, and I probably summer of 2018. Uh, I, uh, sorry, um, 1968. Okay. <laughs> uh, I I got some. I can't even remember how I got it, but I got it, and it was a huge influence. And uh, I thought, wow, this is the cutting edge. This is, these are the people that are working in this area. And so it opened up to me this whole field. <clears throat> and I got to know who the who the major people were. And uh, so it was influential to me. And uh, for years, I've wanted to uh, do it again. You know, I felt that there's lots of information that's been accumulated. I should actually maybe give you a, another part of the backstory. So, you know, I had this volume and I wasn't even out of high school. I was just a, a bored teenager growing up in a small town in Colorado, wishing I was anywhere else but that, but especially 
I wishing I was in San Francisco, right, where the action was, but uh, <laughs> it was not to be. But then uh, in 1986, um, I got a fellowship uh, to go work at NIMH, National Institute of Mental Health. Uh, I just, uh, I had sent one of the investigators my first papers on ayahuasca. I completed my PhD by that time. He requested a paper and I recognized his name because he was a, a person who had published about endogenous DMT, one of the first papers about endogenous DMT. His name was uh, Juan Saavedra. He requested a reprint. I recognized his name from his papers. So I wrote a letter along with the reprint and just basically said, can I please come work with you in your laboratory <laughs> on, on trimmings? And, you know, and he wrote back. He It took some months, but he wrote back. He wrote a, a nice letter, and he said, um, you know, which said basically, well, you know, there is a program here for people who are outside the discipline to get into the discipline. It's called the Pharmacology Research Associate Traineeship. He said, you should that you should consider applying for this program and maybe we can work together. So, in fact, I did apply for it and I went to Bethesda in 1986 and I started a two year program there. And interestingly enough, I had been in the lab more than a couple of weeks when Dr. Saavedra came in and, and he pointed to a shelf up in, uh, you know, in the lab. NIH, NIH labs are not the neatest places on earth. There's a lot of stuff tends to accumulate, but there is a lot of stuff on the top shelf. He said, there's a box of their chemicals that uh, Julie and I, and he was being Julie Axelrod, who later won the Nobel Prize for his work on neurotransmission. You know, yeah. Julie and I were working on this endogenous DMT project, and we had a lot of chemical standards. You should go in there take a look, keep anything that you think is useful and send the rest of it to, you know, hazardous waste. They'll, they'll come and pick it up, right? So, of course, I went right to the box and started, move, uh, you know, sorting through these old, old samples of chemicals. But right beside the box was a mint condition, untouched, the unopened copy of the ethnopharmacologic search for psychoactive drugs. <laughs> and, of course, I recognized it because I have it, but this was a mid-condition copy. So that kind of disappeared into my library quietly. <laughs> uh, I still have it. Uh, Bibliomancers aren't always honest friends. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So both of these are two of my most cherished books. And, uh, you oh, know, yeah. the samples in the box were... Somewhat interesting, you know, actually a lot of tryptamine analogs that uh, I've never seen before. So uh, I kept those back and the rest of it. Uh, and I actually never did much with those things. I was afraid to eat them. And, I, you know, but I kept them around and did some binding studies with them uh, later. But that was sort of the second time that this book came around in a, in a significant point of my life. And it's kind of like haunted my life ever since. I, you know, I wanted to do this uh, this conference for the 30th anniversary in what would it be 1997. Well, it never came together. 
you know, the, the combination of venue and funding and, and the other things you have to do to bring a conference like this about, it never really fell into place. And so I just sort of, actually, I wrote a proposal for it at the time. Nothing happened with it. So I put it on the back burner. <clears throat> and then uh, in, uh, what was it, 2017? It's 20, in 2015, I went to a conference in the UK that was being held by the Turingham Initiative. It's a place, beautiful 18th century castle in, in about an hour and a half north of London, really right out of Downton Abbey. I mean, it looks exactly like that. And, and, the, and the gentleman that owns the place wanted to use this place as a, as a venue for seminars and uh, con conferences and this sort of thing on all of this range of topics, you know, conscious, consciousness, neuroscience, and so on. So he invited me to this. They were having a conference on DMT. And so they invited me and a bunch of other people, you know, far more qualified than I was to be there. Uh, but we had a great conference, and I struck up a, a good relationship with, the, with the, the gentleman whose name is Anton Bilton. And so um, we decided to, you know, I suggested to Anton at some point that we do this conference. And he said, yes. Sounds wonderful. Let's do it. So here we are. We are doing it, and uh, it's taking a lot of time. We have a short time frame. Um, you know, I look back and I thought, I, I think, well, I should have started this six months ago or, or, you know, because the time is getting short. But I think we can pull it off. And so this is what we're doing. We have a website. Uh, which will be, is functional more or less. We're still tweaking it a little bit. The mobile site, I understand, is not so, not so good, but my people are working on it. People have, have gotten together to, to make this happen. So, you know, it's, it's not just me. I have a lot of great people working on it. And, uh, the name of the website is ESPD50.com. So people can look that up. Hopefully, by the time this podcast goes up, it'll be all ready to look at. That sounds great. And so part of the idea is to inspire uh, students today to get into ethnopharmacology in fields like this, like it did for you. Yes, and, and really anyone. It's open to anyone, of course. Uh, well, unlike the previous conference, you know, which was a closed conference, uh, ours is going to be sort of semi-closed uh, because there is not that much room at Turingham. We can accept about 10 to 15 guests who can stay there. And I have to tell you, the cost is very high, uh, but the place is worth it. And then probably about 50 guests who can stay there and attend on a daily basis and stay close by, right? So, and all those details are on the website. Uh, and we're going to print this symposium volume. That's the, that's what's really going to come out of it to present this to the world. In fact, our plan right now is to print the original one and 
the new one as a set, as a deluxe <laughs> collector's edition. <laughs> and we're going to try to uh, pre-sell that. Where you know it's available now for pre-sales, we're going to pre-sell it at a reasonable price, and hopefully we'll get revenues to cover some of the costs of uh, this conference. Uh, now we, the way we're going to let the world in on this, because uh, we can only have a few people actually at the site, but we can now do global web, you know, worldwide streaming on the internet, not an option that was available in 1967. So that's what your colleagues are working on to set up the Facebook page where that will be streamed from. And so anybody can click in as they wish and, and follow the proceedings. Uh, uh, you know, it will be, we're not charging anything. We would like people to register, but even that's optional. So I don't know how many people we'll get, but hopefully this symposium will be seen by quite a few people. That's great. Oh, that's a it's a beautiful idea as a way to get people excited about this field. Uh, are there any uh, particular speakers that are coming that uh, you're really excited about or topics that the conference wants to focus on? Yeah, good question. Yes, there is. In fact, uh, there are several that I could mention. Uh, one of them is David Nichols. Great. who's well-known to everyone in this community. He's going to do a great talk, I'm sure, uh, as he always does. He's going to talk about the sort of the relationship between the work that he does, the medicinal chemistry, and and the relationship to natural products and kind of how plants, you know, point the way to these molecular templates. So, uh He'll give a wonderful talk. Another person I'm really excited uh, who will actually not be there except in spirit, but he's submitting a video and a paper and a, uh, a paper uh, and a, an abstract and so on uh, is Dr. Stephen Zara, uh, who is the person that the first person to actually determine that dimethyltryptamine was psychoactive it, and he did it in the only way possible and by injecting himself with it this was 1957 i think that he published this paper when scientists so, were scientists absolutely and, and stephen uh you know it was very kind he's 93 or some or 95 he's he's el i'm a, if i'm an elder he's an elder's elder uh and uh, he would love to come, but he can't. He just says he can't travel. He's submitting a video that we'll show at the conference, probably posted on the website. And I've had a, a number of correspondences with him. This man is completely cognitively functional, and it shows no, you know, and quite a bright-eyed old fellow. And and you know, after he conducted these experiments in, in Hungary where he was living, but he eventually came to the state. Ironically, he ended up being the section chief for the National Institute on Drug Abuse for many years at NIH. Wow. So, <laughs> so there's uh, that. There's uh, Mark Plotkin is another person who's going to present. Um, and you may know him. He's well known as an ethnobotanist, as author of uh, 
the uh, the Shaman's Apprentice, many other books. Uh, Luis Eduardo Luna, Dr. Luis Eduardo Luna is going to present. Uh, Manuel Torres, Dr. Manuel Torres, who's an archaeologist who's been studying uh, uh, the uh, his, excavating uh, shaman's graves in the Atacama Desert for many years, uh, is going to uh, talk about ayahuasca and the origins of the the. He's going to tackle the admixture question, you know, the perpetual question: How did these people out figure out how to? make this combination of plants. Well, it turns out Manuel has some very interesting ideas about that. Wow. Uh, so there are others, but those are some of the main ones. Uh, yeah, we have a fellow from South Africa, Nigel uh, Garrick, who's talking about uh, um, uh, Kana or Skeletium tortuosum, which has another name that I can hardly pronounce. Very interesting plant used in the uh, by the sand people. Uh, have another fellow from South Africa, uh, Francois uh, Jean Francois Sobiecki, been studying a traditional uh, tribe in South Africa. So, you know, it, it's it's going to be quite an eclectic uh, eclectic gathering, and I. Uh, you know, I, I wanted to, uh, I wanted to, I wanted this conference to focus on the the unilluminated areas of ethnopharmacology. You know, I mean, a lot of these plants have been very well studied. Just not to say there aren't things to study, but I wanted to also pay attention to some of the more obscure ones that have been have come to light in the last fifty years. I've only partially succeeded in that. I mean, some of the things, for example, Salvia divinorum, we couldn't find anyone that could that could really present on it. I asked Brian Roth, the pharmacologist that did all the work. He's not able to come, so that'll have to wait for the next one. But a number of them, we have an expert on kratom, uh, mm, the <clears throat> speciosa, who is going to give a presentation. So. It's not exclusively focused on on psychedelics, not at all. There are other things as well represented, uh, but a few gaps as well. I have to admit. Yeah, you can't. So many plant medicines, so little time. Yes, and so little. Yeah, so little time to talk about it, and really, we can't. Uh, I, we can't invite more than about fifteen speakers, which is what we've got. So three days uh, over over three days, we'll sort all this out. It'll be live streamed. And then the book, you know, I've asked everyone to submit a full paper along with their presentation. And we will then some months uh, afterwards, we'll publish that symposium volume. It'll be high quality. It'll be very cool. Hopefully people will, uh, will uh, pre-purchase it. And we'll get some. We'll get have enough money to actually print it and produce it. I'm pretty optimistic that we we will. Wow, that sounds like a great project. Thank you so much for pulling it together. That's a it'll be a privilege to be able to watch that. Well, it's a lifelong dream of mine. I think it was a, an important event. It certainly was influential to me. So I hope that people I hope that people like it. Um, 
I, uh, yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's, it's the time is, is growing short, but, uh, I think we're going to be able to pull it off. You know, uh, for one thing we've had, I wasn't originally going to try to raise funds to cover. I thought pre-sales of the book would cover everything. That was a delusion on my part. <laughs> But we've had some some wonderful donors who have stepped up to the plate. So we have at least we have enough money to cover everyone's airfare, take them to Tyringham, get them in a good situation, and we'll see what comes out of it. So good, good. And will you be presenting too? Yes, I will be. Uh, I'm I'm basically going to present a retrospective on on you know, this whole kind of personal odyssey of mine with this conference and talk about, you know, highlight some of the, uh, some of the discoveries of the last 50 years. And, you know, so it will be, it will be fluff compared to what producing, but I, I'm good at fluff. <laughs> Everybody's got their strong suit. Um, and uh, that's great. And it's, uh, and actually, that gives a good uh, spot to change gears a little bit, uh, just to hear an update about the Hefter Research Institute that you work with, and uh, what, what yes. uh, what's been new there. Well, uh, I should say, by the way, Hefter Maps and the Beckley Foundation are all sponsors of this, as well as the Institute for Ecotechnics, uh, which is associated with Synergetic Press, which is publishing the book. It will be under their imprimatur that the book is eventually published. So that's all lined up. Uh, Hefter is going great guns, actually. We're in a good place. Uh, you know, it, it, uh, as you know, we've, you know, since the last Psychedelic Science 2013, a number of thresholds have been crossed. And uh, MAPS, as you know, has just received approval to do a phase three study with MDMA for PTSD. Uh, so that's a huge achievement on their part just to get the phase three. The only thing separating them from a successful study is something like $20 million. But I have faith in Rick and I think he will come up with it. Uh, Hefter is focusing on psilocybin rather than MDMA. We've kind of, we haven't, we didn't get together and decide to do this, but we, the way it's fallen out is MDMA is MAPS's thing and psilocybin seems to be Hefter's thing. And we also, uh, Hefter is also approaching, uh, phase three status with uh, some of the studies. The, uh, investigations are more broad than for MDMA, at least under the Hefter umbrella. We're looking at it for, and by I, by we, I should say this is not me. I'm I'm just a cheerleader at this point for Hefter. I don't I'm not actively engaged in research, but our researchers, primarily at NYU uh, under Steve Ross and Johns Hopkins under uh, Roland Griffiths, and then Charlie Grobe, Charles Grobe at UCLA, have, have focused on psilocybin in a number of ways, but the the most obvious you know, medical application is variously described existential anxiety in, in at the end of life, you know, to help people come to terms with their 
existential situation and the fact that they're dying and who wouldn't be anxious and maybe depressed at that prospect. But it helps people uh, come to terms with this. And there have been a number of studies of all of these institutions that show really promising, uh, you know, promising results. Uh, and then other things as well, addictions, for example, there's been a smoking cessation study out of Johns Hopkins that showed spectacular results. Uh, and Roland Griffiths and his group have been the group that sort of pioneered the use of psilocybin to study spirituality, mystical experiences, if you want. Uh, and that's also, that's going forward. They've published several papers on that. They're now working with uh, uh, religious professionals. They have a uh, they have uh, a protocol recruiting right now uh, to get religious professionals enrolled, thinking that, well, religious professionals, professionals should know a lot about spirituality. Um, and I might mention for any of these uh, uh, FDA protocols that are open, whether it's MAPS or, M or Hefter, a uh, valuable resource for people to know about is clinicaltrials.gov. Um, they can go there. This is one of the few good things our, our government does, one of the few good uses of our tax dollars. But you can visit clinicaltrials.gov and, for example, search on MDMA, search on psilocybin. You can find out essentially what, what clinical studies are in progress or recruiting or, or planned or whatever. So it's a good way to get a quick picture of the kind of the, state of the uh, the clinical uh, studies in the states at least and, and actually clinicaltrials.gov lists uh, lists uh, you know uh, studies going on in other countries as well so uh, not not as thorough a coverage but that that's a good thing to know and uh, we're hopeful uh, so, uh, you know hefter is not quite to the point where we're ready to apply for a phase three status, but that is going to come. Um, earlier this year, uh, both groups, the Johns Hopkins group and the and, uh, New York University groups uh, published simultaneously uh, in the same issue of the Journal of Psychopharmacology published kind of large review papers uh, of this work on uh, psilocybin at the end of life. That created a big media buzz. This did not happen accidentally, that they came out in the same issue, and that got a lot of attention. So, it, you know, these things have been discussed in the, in the mass media uh, in quite a positive way, you know, lately because of these, because of these studies and because of good publicity. Uh, so uh, uh, that was kind of a landmark for Hefter. In some ways, Hefter's always been less uh, less publicity oriented, kind of you know in the background. But that was kind of our our coming out, if you will. That yes, look at us. We're we're doing this stuff too and doing it well. And so uh, so the the research is very promising here. And uh, Rick predicts that within maybe by 2021, MDMA will be available. Um, 
to clinicians to treat PTSD or other things. We're not so sure about psilocybin, but it may be available for probably the most likely application or use for it that will come up that that's officially sanctioned is maybe hospice use. Mm -hmm. uh, that seems like an appropriate place to try to, you know, if you're trying to open a door to the use of these things in medicine, that's maybe that's the back door, but it's still a door and it's a way into, uh, you know, mainstream clinical practice somewhere. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how that goes. I, I always thought that was an, an intriguing choice by Hefter out of all the different, uh, possible mental indications and use that psychedelics have to choose end-of-life anxiety with people dying of cancer seemed like uh, an interesting choice. Did you? Where did that idea come from to, to start with some resources in that direction? Well, I'm not sure exactly. I think there have been previous studies uh, back in the 60s before these things were made illegal, previous studies with, uh, with LSD, Primarily, because that was really all that was available for clinical work back then, back in the sixties. But uh, the the mystical experience, religious uh, use of it, or the quasi-religious use, which really overlaps the the you know the the terminal disease, because people are people who are dying tend to be concerned about you know kind of the major existential questions of of life and uh, you know they're dying so they have the opportunity to to uh, ponder these things uh, and Roland has really uh, Roland and his group I should say have really taken this and run with it uh, you know and, and it's and it's very interesting you know I, I mean I consider it in some way, a revolution in psychiatric medicine, because, and maybe in medicine in general, because the problem, you know, everybody dies sooner or later, and medicine. So medicine always fails, right? Ultimately, med medicine always fails. You reach a point where there's nothing more we can do, right? That's what they tell you. There is nothing more we can do, but actually, uh, a well-controlled sort of uh, study in a terminal patient with something like psilocybin, this is something you can do. This is something medicine can do to help people accept the fact that they are mortal, they are dying, and but it can help them come to terms with that and find peace. And that is what we've seen in these studies. You know, it, it's not that... Uh, psilocybin is going to cure anyone's cancer uh you know and that wasn't the point the point was to help them relieve their anxiety and their their depression about about the prospect of dying that said though a good attitude a positive attitude can help a person live longer even if they have a, per, a terminal disease and we've we've noticed that in some of our subjects that they have lived after these treatments six or eight months longer than they were than they were projected to, you know. But just because their attitude was changed, they have a positive attitude. We're we're not claiming anything beyond that. The the point is, and especially in that of these uh, 
you know, these, these studies of uh, mystical experience. Roland prefers to use the term personally meaningful experiences. Personally meaningful, uh, because mystical has sort of religious connotations and not everyone is religious, but we all seek, I think, experiences that are personally meaningful. And in the studies, as you know, probably in his initial study, with this was not terminal patients, but I think uh, something like 30% of the people said it was the most single, most meaningful, personally meaningful experience of their lives about another group said it was among the top five. So that's interesting. Here we have a compound that under the right circumstances can help you have the most personally significant, meaningful experience of your life. Um, that's a huge thing, you know, because especially in our culture, I think that people long for that. You know, they find very little in the culture, even very little in established religions that provide, uh, you know, that kind of satisfying um, personal experience. Uh, so here is a substance that could provide that and help a person face their, their mortality with, with peace. And, and it could be immensely helpful to their families as well. Wow, so. That. That's that's really beautiful, and it and it leads to a question I often like to ask, which is especially of you, is how would you like to see these drugs uh, distributed, dealt with, regulated in this in this Western society, especially considering all the different societies you've seen around the world and their solutions to how to integrate these powerful psychoactives. Right. Well, I think I think that uh, I think that's a problem, you know, for our society. I think what what I would like to see happen is borrow from some of this indigenous knowledge. You know, these substances are always used in the context of ceremony, of shamanism, and of healing, or in some kind of a essentially a sacred set and setting. And we know the importance of set and setting for the outcome of psychedelic experiences. So I think biomedicine or mainstream medicine would be well advised to look at how it's used in indigenous cultures and not to uh, necessarily imitate it whole hog, but borrow from that, build their protocols on, you know, that accumulated knowledge, which stretches back thousands of years and there is no, uh, you know, there's no revenue model for psychedelics per se, right? They've all, they're all in the public domain. They are substances that you take maybe two or three times in your life. So <clears throat> Big Pharma has no real interest in that sort of thing. You know, uh, there's no money to be made on it. And, and like it or not, that's a big motivator for big pharma. They basically want a revenue model. They want a profitable medicine. These are not that, you know. So I think I think that the way it's integrated into medicine is in the context of use. You know, what I would like to see, and here's where a medicine, revenue model might emerge, is 
essentially to have centers, to have places that you could go to have these experiences under very well-controlled, safe, uh, structured, supportive circumstances. Uh, I even look forward to the day when a, a, a terminal uh, patient could take psilocybin and share that with their family. You know, we might not be there. It may take a while to get there. But I can only imagine how meaningful that might be for people and to help not only the person who's dying, but their family come to terms with it. So I think if these centers, if, if the if the drug ever achieves a approved status, I think they, to have these essentially psychedelic hospice centers in a certain way uh, will be what you see happen. And, uh, you know, they will... They won't look like clinics. They won't look like hospitals. You know, they'll look like spas or something like that. They're a place where people can come and, uh, you know, receive uh, therapy for the mind and the body. And uh, just within that context, the psilocybin can be available. And uh, I think that's that's where it's going to go if we can make that model work in some in a few places then and the drug is approved for use then i think you'll see everybody piling on board for this uh you know uh, because the families of patients are going to demand it yeah yeah that makes sense yeah maybe you'll be at the start of another uh mushroom revolution because uh, I I wanted to ask one thing about your magic mushroom growers guide when you yeah. when you put that out with your brother did you know that it was going to spark the kind of revolution and response that opening up mushroom cultivation to everyone did? Well, yes and no. <laughs> I, I mean, I think we suspected that it might, and we we would we were hoping that it might, you know, but I. I don't think either of us dreamed that it would become so widespread. You know, the real reason that we do it or we did it or one of the, one of the original motivations was that, you know, we went to La Chirera, we had all these crazy experiences from the mushrooms, you know, derived from probably too large doses, you know, excess doses and, and some pretty wild stuff went on. We came back wondering, well, is it just us? Are we crazy? Or is this typical of the psilocybin experience? In other words, can other people, did they go to these places and so on? There was no psilocybin mushrooms in the, in the, in the culture at large at that time. So we developed that method mainly to get it out to people to say other people can now do this. The technique is simple. They can have the same experience or they can take it to it. They can tell, you know, they can tell us or tell the world. Yeah. The McKenna's had, you know, a valid experience. I've had similar or they were completely crazy and, you know, but in fact, people do have these crazy experiences on psilocybin. It opened up kind of this whole world to, uh, you know, to examination by anyone who wants to take the time to, to get into it and you don't have to be very skilled to grow the, uh, the mushrooms using, using the methods we describe. you know, now of course they're even easier methods, but yeah. So in a certain sense, I think it opened up in the same way that, uh, 
you know, LSD was a catalyst at the time in society. But LSD for most people was not something that you could, you know, go to, into your kitchen and make. You know, you had to get it from an external source, and that implied there had to be production infrastructures and supply matrices and all this. Psilocybin mushrooms, you know, you could go to the grocery store, buy a few common ingredients, go home and cook it up. You know, all you needed was the spores. And that was one of the things about it that we that we were really proud of, that it didn't require, a, you know, a cartel or, you know, uh, all of these connections to get the chemicals. It was just a very organic, natural thing. As my brother once described it, you know, an easy, simple way to get great dope out of mason jars, you know, and <laughs> in some ways that's right. So, it is very so, democratic. Yeah, it's very democratic. And now, so I think it had to, I think it helped, uh, you know, I wouldn't say it brought psychedelics back into the mainstream. That took later for this research to open up, but it did keep the conversation alive, you know, for that period. It came out in 1975, I believe, which was really a dark era in, in the, in the world of, uh, you know, psychedelics. I mean, these things were, you know, vilified, marginalized, all of that, uh, for many years, you know, and, and often, sometimes at least it seemed the only person out there continuing to talk about it was my brother. And he was, you know, I, 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 uh, give him credit for his courage for doing that because he did keep the conversation alive and eventually, it got through in that clinicians, other people, uh, you know, decided to circle back on it and, and take a closer look at it, starting with Rick Strassman's work in the 90s, you know, and Terrence and, and I, probably Terrence more than I, but we can both claim a certain uh, uh, credit for convincing Rick that he should do this, you know, because I can remember conversations where we were uh, discussing, oh, everybody's crying in their beer about why can't we do psychedelic research, you know, and, and I remember the conversation and it was like, well, Rick, you're an MD, you know, you're more qualified probably than anybody on the planet to do this work. Why don't you do this work? Go through the hoops, you know, jump, apply for permission and all that. And he did, and he got permission. And that really shoved open the door and begin to, I wouldn't say shoved it open, but opened it a crack in the mid-90s. And that was kind of the end of the, uh, you know, the dark age of prohibition for psychedelics. And it built on it from there. Now psychedelics are poised to revolutionize medicine and psychiatry at the very least. You know, and my feeling is it's about time because both of those institutions you know, need, need uh, radical change. Yeah. So that, yeah, that makes sense. Um, and I'll, uh, and that actually leads to the last question I wanted to ask before I let you go here. Um, just wanted to hear an update about your research using the Amazonian medicines for conditions like schizophrenia and other mental health uh, disorders. Yeah. Well, that, my, uh, my research, uh, 
Um, I, that that research is essentially over, I think. But what you're uh, for the moment, at least, although there may be another phase. But uh, a few years ago, I got a grant uh, from the Stanley Medical Research Institute to collect Amazonian medicines that might be useful for treating so-called negative re uh, symptoms of schizophrenia, not psychosis per se, but some of the uh, associated symptoms that still help essentially schizophrenics are still quite dysfunctional because even if their psychosis is controlled because they, they don't think well, essentially they're not high functional. So there's a search on for, uh, new compounds to to treat that i was able to get this grant they were interested in natural products and uh for me it was wonderful because it was a chance to reconnect with my colleagues in peru and start going there regularly um, the significance of the work also was that uh you know the activity of the kind of what we were looking for in terms of activity uh also graded over into the area of dementia and cognitive deficits, essentially. So uh, some of these compounds or plants that we investigated might point toward that as well. Uh, we use receptor binding technologies to look at about 350 different fractions and of from maybe 150 different species of plants. And out, after all that, there were about six or seven genera that sort of floated to the top in terms of these look interesting. We should do more work on them. There should be animal studies. And that's kind of where the study stopped. Uh, but you know, it's, it's out there to do. And, and, uh, um, you know, I, if, if funds come along, I may take it up myself. In the meantime, people can, read the paper it was published in the journal of ethnopharmacology so you know you can read how far we got and uh yeah that's what i'm doing i've lately gotten very interested in uh some of the ayahuasca admixture plants or some of the plants used in the dietas uh some of which were included in this study and uh that's like a whole area of that's a whole uh pharmacopoeia of plants in a way that's closely associated with ayahuasca but not very well investigated at all so some of these are virtually unknown in terms of their chemistry others are sort of known you know a lot of work still to be done there uh, a lot of work i don't know if it will be me but uh in fact i'm pretty sure it won't be me <laughs> but you know i've been Privileged to work with some young people. I have a, uh, I'm on the committee of a young, young, uh, ethnobotanist at the University of Hawaii who's going for his PhD. Very enthusiastic young guy. And, uh, so maybe he'll make the discoveries. I am, uh, well, I guess I have to say I'm an elder now. And, and one of the perks of being an elder is you don't have to go to the field and, beat yourself up at least not as often <laughs> as i did before so so but it's all good there's a lot of research going on and i'm still very much into ayahuasca myself personally and organize uh, retreats uh, to south america uh, regularly and uh, 
and uh, you know, um, eventually there may be some ayahuasca doesn't fit into the FDA mold mold as well as psilocybin or MDMA because they're single compounds. They can be synthesized. Ayahuasca is a horse of a different color or a plant of a different color. It can be studied that way, but it's more problematic. You know, and I am sort of uh, lately inclined to the view that uh, it's an indigenous medicine. Maybe it should be studied where it originated. It's certainly possible to do this work in Peru. And maybe that's where, you know, rigorous clinical studies should be done. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see what happens, basically, on that front. Yeah, sacraments are hard to study. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for sharing with us and for putting the time and energy into pulling together this conference. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it, and I appreciate you uh, sharing about it. All right. Well, I appreciate you asking, and uh, I'll look look forward to seeing this. I guess we'll put it up on the uh, you'll put it on the symposia webpage. Yeah, and the psychedelic salon uh, 2.0, and we'll put up all the links to things you're talking salon. about, and um, yeah, get it out there. Let people know. Watch it perfect, online. Perfect. All right. Thank you so much, Lex. I really appreciate your support. That sounds great, Dennis. I'm looking forward to it. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. A special thanks to Matt Payne, who engineered the sound, California Smile, who made the music, and to Brian Norman, who produced the show.